Good evening. If you turn your Bible to Titus chapter 3. I tricked you for a moment, didn't I? Titus chapter 3. Thank you, Adam. Praise team, band. Regen for blessing us every week. There's a lot of things, as Adam said, the youth could be doing. And you're blessing us by you sacrificing your time on Sunday afternoon. And uh, only eternity will tell us the fruit that's born from that. Not just with us, but with you, the youth. It's hard to sing the praises of God and not be changed by it. Well, let me pray and ask the Lord just to continue to bless our time as he already has. Father, thank you for this day, the Lord's day. And Lord, we have rejoiced and we have been glad in it. Uh, but Lord, we continue to rejoice and we pray that even as we look at this passage in Titus 3, that you would just strengthen our resolve, even as our love for you grows, as you enlighten us, uh, as you reveal your glory to us uh, in the face of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask this tonight in Jesus' name, amen. Well, tomorrow we celebrate the, the 500 and fifth anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation. It began on August or October uh, the uh, 31st of 1517. It was All Hallows Eve, the day before All Saints Day. And on that day, the people were scheduled to file past the, the relics of the church. Now, what, what are the relics? Well, these were uh, physical remains or items owned or worn by Jesus, the apostles, or even the, the saints that had been canonized in the church. And these people would appeal to the excess merits of the saints. In other words, these saints had done more than they needed to get to heaven. And so they would appeal to the excess merits of the saints in hopes of satisfying God's righteous demands. Every relic was endowed by the Pope, Pope Leo X, with an indulgence for reduction of time in purgatory. Now, where do they get purgatory? Second Maccabees chapter two. It's not in our Bible. It's an apocryphal book. Uh, but it's, it, he would appeal to this, or they would appeal to these relics to reduce time in purgatory. For example, in Wittenberg, where Martin Luther lived, the relics included, get this, one piece of Jesus' swaddling clothes when he was a baby, 13 pieces from his crib, one wisp of straw from his crib, Three of the myrrh, one strand of Jesus' beard, you can't make this up, one piece of the gold brought by the wise men, one of the nails, they had this in Wittenberg, driven into the hands of Jesus, one piece of the bread eaten at that first Supper, that night before the cross, the last supper of the Passover, but you could say the first supper as well. 
one piece of stone on which Jesus stood to ascend to heaven. It's one of the relics. And get this, quite a collector's item here, one twig from the burning bush. All of that in Wittenberg. That's just one place. So those who uh, viewed the relics and touched the relics on the designated day and made, and this is important, the required contributions might receive indulgences from the Pope to the extent of 1,902,202 years and 270 days. In other words, that much time could be taken away from your time in purgatory. Well, this occurred every year. But this particular year, 1517, was different for a couple of reasons. First, Martin Luther, the monk, his study in the scriptures had been leading him to different conclusions from the Roman Catholic Church. Prior to this, whatever good works a person might do to save himself, Martin Luther was all in. Here's what he says. I was a good monk. I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if I ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, <laughs> I don't know if that's a word, but Luther used it. It was I. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils and prayers, reading, and other work. Luther went to confession for as long as six hours a day. He believed that for sins to be forgiven, they had to be confessed. If he didn't confess all of his sins, those sins that were unconfessed would be unforgiven. But for those sins to be confessed, they had to be remembered. What if he didn't remember all of his sins? And then for him to remember all of his sins, they had to be recognized and seen for what they were. If not, their sins, his sins would be forever unforgiven. But he, here was the problem. He never felt like the ledger could be balanced. Well, that's the first reason, his study of scripture. Second reason, and we'll come back to Luther in a moment. Um, a second reason this year was different 1517, Michelangelo was painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, and he didn't come cheap. And Pope Leo X, his, his taste in art had all but bankrupted the, 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 the Vatican treasury. Meanwhile, there was a fellow named Albert of Brandenburg who had secured two positions as bishops at too young an age, but he had money. And now he was securing or seeking to secure a third one from the Pope, but it would take a, a special uh, commendation from the Pope for that to happen, a special exemption. Well, Leo X, the Pope, and Albert were businessmen, and so they agreed on a price. But here's the problem. Albert was rich in land, but he wasn't rich in money. Enter the monk, Johann Tetzel. Maybe you've heard of Tetzel. He devised a scheme 
involving an indulgence sale, which guaranteed the one who buys the indulgence shorter time in purgatory. Indulgences were pardons for sin. Tetzel took advantage of this in order to finance Albert's goals. Uh, Tetzel's campaign, with the Pope's blessing, um, as long as half of the money went to the funding of St. Uh, Peter's Basilica, was a record indulgence sale um, that would forgive all sins. And maybe you've heard the little uh, jingle that he coined. Uh, he, he said, a, a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That was the little ditty that he, would, that he would chant as he was selling these indulgences. Well, Luther, because of his study of Scripture, could not be silent any longer. And so on All Saints Day, the merits of the saints were due to be offered in Wittenberg. That's where he lived. So on All Saints Eve, October the 31st, he posted his 95 theses on the, the door of the Wittenberg castle. What he was seeking to do was to stir a debate. Luther began to see the erroneous teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that, and here's what they would teach, that God will not deny grace for those who do their best. But that makes grace a paycheck. It takes away grace completely. Uh, he, if he, God's just giving you what you have earned, and it also assumes we actually do our best, which we know better than. Luther came to understand if we're to have a right standing with God, it would require something more than our best. It would require a perfect righteousness, a righteousness outside of us, a righteousness that could only be secured through Jesus Christ, the only righteous one. And once that righteousness is credited to the believer, once that righteousness is imputed, that's the language that's often used, Yes, it does begin to be worked in the believer as well. But that progressive inherent righteousness is not the ground of our salvation. Jesus imputed righteousness is the ground of our salvation. It's a perfect righteousness. See, Luther began to see the critical difference between the Roman Catholic Church and the scriptures in this sense. The Roman Catholic Church collapses justification and sanctification. So it teaches that you can actually grow in your justification. And, and the scripture teaches that though justification and sanctification uh, are not separate, they are distinct. We need a perfect righteousness that's outside of us. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church also teaches we can actually desire and do things apart from grace to warrant grace. Well, that brings us to one of the critical passages in the Reformation, Titus 3. There were many passages, like in Romans and Galatians, but this is also one of those critical passages that kind of dispels the Roman Catholic teaching on these ideas. And we're just going to look at a few verses tonight because of time issue. But if you look with me in verse 3 of Titus 3, uh, we see that prior to saving grace... 
We're in a pretty difficult, pretty bad place. Uh, in fact, Paul gives us this because he recognizes, as we saw last week, you can't appreciate the light unless there's darkness. Or as the Puritans used to say, before a person can come to Mount Calvary, that person first has to go to Mount uh, Zion or uh, Mount Sinai. And so we see in verse 3 the necessity of the gospel. There's nothing we can do. We need the gospel, the necessity of the gospel. Look with me in verse 3. He writes, the Apostle Paul, for we ourselves were once foolish. Now, what that what sin does, and, and I'm going to alliterate this to help you remember this, but sin dumbs us. Uh, sin is, it produces foolishness, but foolishness is also the root of our sin. Uh, sin dumbs us. He says we were once foolish, disobedient, so sin disobeys. You don't have to teach a kid to disobey. It's their natural uh, instinct to disobey. They have to be taught how to obey. Led astray. What does sin do? It deceives. Sin makes darkness look like light. Sin makes light look like darkness. Sin deceives. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Sin dictates. Sin governs. Sin controls us. It dictates. Passing our days in malice, sin detests. Our natural instinct is to detest people, to think bad of them, to speak ill of them. Sin detests. And envy, sin desires. The reason we envy is we, we have a controlling desire. Uh, we want something that someone else has, and we envy them because we don't have it. Hated by others and hating one another, sin divides. You see what sin does? And that is our natural condition. Hating one another, uh, hating by, hated by others and hating one another. Uh, it divides. And so uh, we see in verse 3 the necessity of the gospel. There's nothing we can do to warrant grace. There's nothing we can do to warrant favor with God. This is our natural condition. We're in a bad state. We're in a, a, a very dangerous place. But notice in the second part of this passage, we see the origin of the gospel. Verse 4. But, and that word is always good news in the Apostle Paul's writings. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the whole sentence here, this is one sentence, centers upon the main verb. What is the main verb? He saved us. Isn't that glorious news? After what you just read in verse 3, and verse 3 is a mirror. It's a mirror that we're all looking in. After reading that and recognizing our plight 
to read in verse 4 and 5, but he saved us. It should warm your heart. If you're dull in your faith tonight, that should warm your heart. You know, Christianity, unlike every other religion in the world, is a religion of salvation. Now, every other religion teaches some kind of um, means of redemption. But the difference between Christianity and every other religion is that it's self-salvation. Every other religion teaches self-salvation. Christianity teaches us that God must save us. And he has in the Son. And in God's act of saving us, notice, he didn't take into consideration any works, anything that any of us have done. That means... If I were to stand, if I were to have a a serial killer stand up here on the stage who has been converted to Jesus Christ, and there are examples of that, and I would have a moralist standing up here next to him, what this means is the moralist no more deserves salvation than the serial killer. Now that goes against our instincts, but Paul is saying God does not take anything that we've done into account when he saved us. Notice, not because of works done by us in righteousness. God doesn't say, man, that kid is in regen. Uh, There are other kids that are doing some pretty uh, sinister things on Sunday afternoon, but this kid comes week after week to regen. And Paul said, when God saves a young person, he doesn't even take regen into account. Not by any works, but notice, according to his own mercy, by the washing, the renewal, the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So this is regeneration. This is a miracle of grace where we are made new. Just as in the original creation, God said, let light shine out of darkness and light appears. God shines in our hearts and light appears. Paul uses that language in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. But God who said light shall shine out of the works uh, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So even though we've been regenerated though, we need something more than an inherent righteousness to stand before God. We still, even with changed hearts, we need something more. We need perfect righteousness. And that brings us to the final part of this passage. Before we approach the table, uh, we've seen the, uh, the necessity of the gospel. We've seen the origin of the gospel. And here we see the ground of the gospel, verses 6 and 7. In verse 6, Paul writes... Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so our salvation is more than inward renewal. You know, there are a lot of Christian songs that sing about inward renewal. And that's a beautiful thing. It's an important thing. Um, But our greatest need is not inward renewal. 
Our greatest need is to have our legal status changed from condemned, unrighteous criminal before the bar of the righteous judge to justified. That is our greatest need. And he is using the language here of justification. Uh, Such an important concept. Every Christian should be able to define what justification is. Again, notice, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That was the doctrine that Luther was going after. The doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to give you a definition of justification I think will be helpful for you to memorize. This comes from the Baptist Catechism. I just kind of put some 21st century updated English to it. But justification is an act of God's free grace. Again, Paul says it's nothing you do. Whereby he pardons us of all of our sins. That is, he, he forgives us. Have you ever uh, hurt someone and, and you just lost sleep over it? And, and then that person kindly forgives you. Isn't that the greatest feeling in the world? Well, God pardons us of all of our sins. That's, that, that's justification. And so he pardons us all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. It's as if we have never sinned against him. It's as if we had lived Jesus' life. All right? He accepts us as righteousness in his sight, but only for the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to us and received by faith alone. And so when you trust in Jesus, here's what happens. There's a great exchange. On the cross, our sins are imputed to Jesus, and it's as if he lived our life. And, and, and his righteousness is imputed to us. It's as if we lived his life of perfect righteousness. And so the implications of this are vast. This means that if you are in Christ by faith, in God's sight, you now have perfectly kept the law. There was never a moment in your life you did not perfectly keep the law. God looks at you as if you had lived Jesus' life, that you had loved your neighbor as yourself. You loved your enemies, and you worshiped God in spirit and in truth and loved him with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's a remarkable doctrine. And note how these attributes mount up here. Again, It's because of his goodness that we're saved. It's because of his loving kindness, verse 4, that we're saved. It's because of his mercy, verse 5, that we're saved. It's because of his grace that we are saved. Now, going back to the need for the Reformation. Sometimes people make the argument that uh, Luther was overreacting. Not on your life. In fact, none of this has really disappeared from the Roman Catholic Church. That's not to say uh, there aren't Christians who are Catholics, but I would submit that they are Christians in spite of what the church officially teaches. Uh, So for instance, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is their official teaching, it was updated in 1994, not too long ago. It still affirms purgatory and indulgences. 
In fact, when Pope Benedict XVI, who was the Pope from 2005 to 2013, when he came out with his book called The Last Testament in 2016, he gave more pages to purgatory than he did to heaven and hell combined. And in the summer of 2013, Pope Francis offered indulgences to those who would follow him on Twitter. You can't make that up. It would shorten your time in purgatory if you follow him on Twitter. Also in 2016, Pope Francis said that any Roman Catholic priest could grant forgiveness in what he called the special year of mercy. Well, that year ended, uh, ended and he continued to offer that deal indefinitely beyond it. And that's because of the belief that the Pope has control over the treasury of merit achieved by Jesus, the saints, and Mary. But what does the scripture say? It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because it's Jesus Christ alone who secured our salvation. At the cross, we see our sins both fully punished and fully pardoned. Isn't that glorious? At the cross, we see our sins as believers both fully punished and fully pardoned. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.